Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I'm trying to free your mind, Neo. But I can only show you the door. You're the one that has to walk through it. Welcome everyone to the Origins Podcast, I'm your host Paul and this is episode 103. This week's show is entitled Kidney Beans, the kitchen ingredient that could poison you. Our first story this week comes from the www.todayifoundout.com website. Why black cats are considered bad luck. Today I found out the origin of superstitions surrounding black cats, including why a black cat crossing your path is considered bad luck. Black cats weren't always the butt of superstitions, feared, or even considered bad luck. In fact, in early Egyptian times, dating back as far as 3000 BC, cats, including black ones, were the rock stars of the animal world. Held in high esteem, to kill one was considered a capital crime. It wasn't until the Middle Ages in Europe that the black cat's rock star status started to go downhill as they began to be associated with so-called witches. The hysteria of witches practicing black magic had just hit Europe and alley cats were often cared for and fed by the poor lonely old ladies. Funny how some things never change. Later accused of witchery. Their cat companions, some of which were black ones, were deemed guilty of witchery by association. This belief was taken up a notch when a folklore involving a father and son in Lincolnshire in the 1560s started making the rounds. The pair were said to have been travelling one moonless night when a black cat crossed their path and dove into a crawl space. 
Naturally, they did what any guys would do. They threw rocks at the furry feline until the helpless injured creature scurried out into a woman's house, who at the time was suspected of being a witch. The next day, the father and son came across the same woman and noticed she was limping and bruised and believed that to be more than just a coincidence. From that day on in Lincolnshire, it was thought that witches could turn into black cats at night. The belief of witches transforming themselves into black cats in order to prowl streets unobserved became a central belief in America during the Salem witch hunts. Even today, the association of black cats and witches holds strong during Halloween celebrations, despite the holiday's religious beginnings. Thus, an animal once looked on with approbation became a symbol of evil omens in some parts of the world. However, in some cultures, the black cat is still revered and a symbol of good luck even today. The Scottish believe that a strange black cat's arrival to the home signifies prosperity, while pirates of the 19th century believed if a black cat walked towards you, it's a sign of bad luck. But it's good luck if it walks away from you. In the English Midlands, a black cat as a wedding present is thought to bring good luck to the bride. And as sometimes happens on this website, we have some bonus stories. Bonus Superstition Origins Spilling Salt Superstition It is said that a devil sits over our left shoulder and an angel on our right. Salt is spilled as a warning from our guardian angel of the devil's evil intentions that loom over us. Hence, you can mitigate your bad luck by throwing salt over your left shoulder into the eyes of the devil, thereby distracting him. Another variation of the superstition is to throw the salt over your right shoulder. It's considered an offering to your guardian angel, as salt was once a rare, precious and valuable commodity. And secondly, knock on wood or touching wood superstition. Back in the 1700s, wood was considered to be lucky or full of good spirits. In 1849, there was even a popular kids game similar to today's tag called Touch Iron or Wood. In the game, kids were considered safe as long as they were touching either iron or wood as they raced along objects. Others say the luck or good spirits of wood stems back to the origins of the Christian cross. No matter how you say the term touch wood or knock on wood, it's meant to either bring good fortune or to keep the good fortune you are having to continue.
There's a fact about Australia that our tourist industry doesn't advertise too often. Out of the ten most venomous snakes in the world, Australia has something like the top six. Anyway, whilst I'm talking about snakes, the other day in our bromeliad and cacti house we found this snake skin. We have a number of snakes living in the botanic gardens, of course, because it's a very large area, 52 hectares or about 120 acres, lots of forest, lots of bush, so of course snakes make their home there. Anyway, this snake shed its skin in the bromeliad and cacti house, and when we picked it up it was about 3 metres long, or about 10 feet, and it came from a carpet snake. It's called a carpet snake because of the diamond-shaped carpet-style patterns that it has on its skin. It's a constrictor because it's a python, so if you leave it alone, it more or less leaves you alone. Although if you do try to grab it, it would give you a nasty bite. Anyway, it's something great that I take with me around when I do my lessons with the children, and when we're talking about snakes and things in the gardens, I whip out this three metre long snakeskin just to their amusement. It sort of horrifies some of the parents, but the kids really like it. Anyway, from the www.environmentalgraffiti.com website, I found this really interesting article. The 10 most beautiful snakes on earth. It's something you really need to go to the show notes for at www.origins.info but I'm going to do the text in this article and then maybe later you can check out the website because these really are beautiful snakes. Snakes. The word makes some shudder and others cringe while yet others think in wonder of the huge world of reptiles and their marvels. Whether you hate them or love them, one thing cannot be denied, their beauty. Count the top ten down with me. Number ten, the Honduran milk snake. Lampropeltus triangulum hondurensis is found in Honduras and Nicaragua. While at first glance not one of the most beautiful snakes, take a look at its scales above. They are bright, which is what the lampro in the binomial name stands for, and a brilliant red and black. They are constrictors but look a lot like coral snakes, which herpetologists believe is an example of Batesian mimicry, or when a harmless animal takes on the appearance of a venomous one to protect themselves. Number 9. The Leuchistic Texas Rat Snake This Leuchistic Texas Rat Snake is a lovely lady in white. She gets her colouring and the leuchistic element of her name from a condition that results in a lack of all pigmentation, rather than just melanin, which appears in albinism. This is why her eyes are of normal colour. Texas rat snakes are obviously found in Texas, as well as in Arizona and Louisiana. They are non-venomous, so a bite will give you little more than a sore leg. Number 8. The Indigo Eastern Rat Snake The Eastern Indigo Snake is unofficially the longest in America, reaching lengths of 9.2 feet. Carnivorous in habits, he has been known to beat his prey against other objects in a frenzied fashion to kill it. He will even eat other snakes, such as the Texas rattlesnake, and is immune to its venom. That aside, he deserves number eight in our countdown for his brilliant black beauty, 
that can almost look blue in the light. Number 7. The Emerald Tree Boa One of the most vivid and unforgettable snakes is the Emerald Tree Boa, Corallus caninus. These are found in South America and the Amazon. Even though it looks like it is closely related to the green tree python and sleeps the same way, they are only distant relatives. One thing that the emerald has is very large front teeth. The way she catches her prey is to stay coiled on the branch, head down, ready to strike. She then catches small mammals with her front teeth and pulls them in to their doom. Beautiful snake number six. The iridescent shield tail. The only reason this lovely is not in the top three is that it is hard to see exactly how beautiful she is from this photograph. But she is actually even more gorgeous than she appears here. She has to be one of the most beautiful snakes in the world. The iridescent shield tail is not well known. Only three specimens are thought to have ever been caught and little is known of how it behaves in the wild. Recently some more have been seen, but all that can be said for certain is that it's beautiful and rare. Number 5. A Melanistic Burmese Python This head-turner is an Amelanistic Burmese Python a species which retains their yellow, cartanoid-derived pigments. Mammals only produce pigments with melanins, while birds and reptiles can also produce them by other means, including cartanoids, as we see here. Effectively, though, she can be considered an albino snake in that a melanistic is classified under albinism. Number 4. The Brazilian Rainbow Boa now, this is a pretty snake. This beauty is the Brazilian rainbow boa, named for the iridescent colour of its scales. The underlying colour is either brown, orange as we see here, or a mix of the other two. It is found in Central and South America and all the way through the Amazon basin. It is medium-sized compared to other snakes and it likes the rivers and drainage areas living for up to 20 years. Number 3. The Eastern Coral Snake Microurus fulvius is one of the most beautiful of all snakes. Unfortunately, it is also very venomous, as are all coral snakes. On the good side, there are only about 15 to 20 recorded bites a year, but on the bad side, they are deadly, and soon there will be no more anti-venom for it. Pfizer has said that with such low demand, it is not worth the cost and research spent on it and the current stock is due to expire at the end of this year. The snakes are forest animals lying in leaf litter and brush. They flee before biting, but if you do get bitten, it is imperative you go to a doctor. Respiratory failure occurs within hours. Beautiful snake. Number two, the blue racer snake. This beauty is a pretty rare photograph of a blue racer snake. I say rare because it's not often you get such a brilliant blue reflecting from the scales 
as often they seem more grey in colour. Its formal name is Colubur constrictor, but despite this they normally simply pin their prey to the ground and swallow them alive. They are known mostly east of the Rockies, but have been seen as far south as Mexico. And finally, number one, the green tree python. Morelia viridius, the green tree python, is a stunner that is found in New Guinea, Indonesia and parts of Australia. It, along with the emerald tree boa, have a unique way of sleeping. They loop one or two coils along a branch, saddle style, and place their head in the middle. Remember, if it's in Indonesia, it is a python. If it is in South America, a boa. They are often mixed up because they are the only two that sleep this way. Sadly, it is threatened due to the destruction of its habitat by logging as well as by the pet trade. For her grace, her beauty and her threatened status, she easily deserves the number one spot in our countdown. As I said earlier, whether you shudder at snakes or you like them, their beauty cannot be denied. There are others some feel more beautiful, but I think this gives a good cross-section of the amazing diversity in appearance. Several are threatened by loss of habitat, thereby threatening other species. However, hopefully we can remember that they are needed in this world to keep the food chain balanced. If for no reason but their beauty, I hope you will think twice when you hear of new logging in the Amazon or other areas. From the news.nationalgeographic.com Friday the 13th, Superstitions, Rooted in the Bible and more. They date back to at least ancient Roman times, but Friday the 13th, Superstitions won't be getting much of a workout this year. Luckily for Triskaidekaphobia sufferers, August the 13th is the only Friday the 13th this year. That must come as a relief after 2009's nine Friday the 13ths, the maximum possible in a year, at least as long as we continue to mark time with the Gregorian calendar, which Pope Gregory XIII ordered the Catholic Church to adopt in 1582. You can't have any years with none, and you can't have any with four because of our funny calendar, said Underwood Dudley, a Professor Emeritus of Mathematics at DePaul University in Indiana and author of Numerology, or What Pythagoras Wrought. 
the calendar works just as its predecessor, the Julian calendar, did, with a leap year every four years. But the Gregorian calendar skips leap year on century years, except those divisible by 400. For example, there was no leap year in 1900, but there was one in 2000. This trick keeps the calendar in tune with the seasons. The result is an ordering of days and dates that repeats itself every 400 years, Dudley noted. As time marches through the order, some years appear with three Friday the 13th, or other years have two, or like 2010, one. It's just that curious way our calendar is constructed, with 28 days in February and all those 30s and 31s, Dudley said. When the 400-year order is laid out, another revelation occurs. The 13th falls on Friday more often than any other day of the week. It's just a funny coincidence, Dudley said. Richard Beveridge, a mathematics instructor at Clatsop Community College in Origin, authored a 2003 paper in the journal Mathematical Connections on the mathematics of Friday the 13th. He noted the 400-year cycle is further broken down into periods of either 28 or 40 years. At the end of every cycle, you get a year with three Friday the 13ths, the year before the last year in the cycle. And you also get one on the 10th year of all the cycles, he said. 2009, for example, was the 10th year of the cycle that started in 2000. Friday the 13th superstitions are rooted in ancient bad luck associations with the number 13 and the day Friday, said Donald Dosey, a folklore historian and author of Holiday Folklore, Phobias and Fun. The two unlucky entities ultimately combined to make one super unlucky day. Dosey traces the fear of the number 13, a.k.a. Triskaidekaphobia, to a Norse myth about twelve gods having a dinner party at Valhalla, Norse mythology's heaven. In walked the uninvited thirteenth guest, the mischievous god Loki. Once there, Loki arranged for Hoda, the blind god of darkness, to shoot Balder the beautiful, the god of joy and gladness, with a mistletoe-tipped arrow. Balder died and the whole earth got dark. The whole earth mourned. It was a bad, unlucky day, Dosey said. There is also a biblical reference to the unlucky number 13. Judas the Apostle, said to have betrayed Jesus, was the 13th guest to the Last Supper. As for Friday, it's well known among Christians as the day Jesus was crucified. Some biblical scholars believe Eve tempted Adam with the forbidden fruit on. Friday. Perhaps most significant is the belief that Abel was slain by his brother Cain on Friday the 13th. Meanwhile in ancient Rome, witches reportedly gathered in groups of 12, the 13th was believed to be the devil. In modern times, many Triskaidekaphobes point to the ill-fated mission to the moon, Apollo 13. 
Thomas Fernsler, an associate policy scientist in the Mathematics and Science Education Resource Centre at the University of Delaware in Newark, said the number 13 suffers because of its position after number 12. According to Fernsler, numerologists consider 12 a complete number. There are 12 months in a year, 12 signs of the zodiac, 12 gods of Olympus, 12 labours of Hercules, 12 tribes of Israel and 12 apostles of Jesus. In exceeding 12 by 1, Fernsler said 13's association with bad luck has to do with just being a little beyond completeness. The number becomes restless or squirmy, not unlike some folks with triskaidekaphobia today. Some people are so paralysed by Friday the 13th superstitions that they refuse to fly, buy a house or act on a hot stock tip, for example. It has been estimated that 8 to 900 million US dollars is lost in business on this day because people will not fly or do business they would normally do, said Dossie, the historian, who is also the founder of the Stress Management Centre and Phobia Institute in Asheville, North Carolina. Among other services, Dosi's organisation counsels clients on how to deal with Friday the 13th superstitions, which fuel a phobia that he estimates afflicts 17 to 21 million people in the United States. Symptoms range from mild anxiety to full-blown panic attacks. The latter may cause people to reshuffle schedules or miss an entire day's work. When it comes to bad luck of any kind, Richard Wiseman, a psychologist at the University of Hertfordshire in Hatfield, England, found that people who consider themselves unfortunate are more likely to believe in superstitions associated with bad luck. Their beliefs and behaviour are likely to be part of a much bigger world view, he said. They will believe that luck is a magical force and that it can ruin their lives. Triskaidekaphobia can even be seen in how societies are built. More than 80% of high-rise buildings lack a 13th floor. Many airports skip the 13th gate. And hospitals and hotels regularly have no room number 13. On streets in Florence, Italy, the house between number 12 and number 14 is addressed as 12 and a half. In France, socialites known as the Quatorzians or Fourteeners once made themselves available as 14th guests to keep a dinner party from an unlucky fate. To poor universities, Dudley said nobody really knows why Friday the 13th has spawned so many superstitions. You've got to have something that's unlucky, and somehow they hit on 13, he said. But all these explanations are just... Moonshine.
And on to today's feature story from the www.environmentalgraffiti.com Kidney beans, the common kitchen ingredient that could poison you by Michelle Collette Abstain from beans And that was the advice of Plutarch, the ancient Greek biographer and author Plutarch had a reason for saying this. Many beans contain toxins, but the most toxic of all is the common kidney bean. As we are coming up on the colder season, meant for soups, chilies and stews, it is timely to remember what the poison in the bean is and how to detoxify it. The culprit of this intestinal mayhem is the toxin phytohemagglutinin, or kidney bean lectin found in quite a few beans, though kidney beans have the highest amount. For example, raw kidney beans contain between 20,000 and 70,000 hemagglutinating units, while white ones contain a third of that and broad beans only contain 5-10% to of this figure. The operative word here is raw. Once they are cooked properly, they are detoxified. Phytohemagglutinin, the sinister chemical that goes along with all the healthy ones that make kidney beans great, makes you feel very ill, starting with nausea and then on to extreme vomiting and finally ending in waves of diarrhoea. You need to ingest a large amount of the compound, but the bad news is that only three beans can be considered a high enough amount. The reason you may not have heard of this is twofold. One, most of the time kidney beans are properly soaked and cooked. It only takes 10 minutes at a high temperature to detoxify them. And of course, canned ones are safe as can be due to having been processed. As very few people, if any, eat raw beans, you might wonder why it is an issue at all. Well, this nasty bacteria has a secret curveball to throw. If they are undercooked rather than raw, or completely cooked at high temperature, they absolutely must boil for 10 minutes. Kidney beans at an internal temperature of 75 or 80 degrees increase their toxicity level five times over raw beans. Many to most slow cookers or stews cooked at a gentle simmer will not reach temperatures high enough to render the beans safe. Tests have found slow cookers are often only at 75 degrees. This is fine for a long 8-hour simmer of almost all ingredients apart from kidney beans. Some people blame the symptoms on a bad stomach, bad salad or mayo in a meal, when it is really the beans. The good news? It generally resolves itself in four to five hours, though some victims need hospitalisation. Stay safe this fall and winter, and remember to either use canned beans or make sure the beans boil for at least ten minutes, and you will be much happier without any nasty repercussions after eating a lovely prepared meal. And this week, while my 
wife is away in the Northern Territory, one of the meals I was going to make is my favourite. I do a really nice nachos, and guess what's in the nachos? Kidney beans. Luckily I used canned ones, but it's certainly going to make me think twice when I sit down and tuck into this hearty meal. Now there's a bit of theme music you hadn't heard for a while. I thought I'd drag it up just for the next two articles. Two articles with an Australian theme. The first comes from the www.livescience.com and it's entitled Scientists Drill into Ancient Underwater Coral Reef and it's by Andrea Mustaine. A voyage to the outer edges of Australia's Great Barrier Reef has brought back pieces of an ancient fossilised ancestor to the vast living ecosystem. This fossilised coral reef was alive about 20,000 years ago during the height of the last glacial period, a time when Earth was around 9 degrees Fahrenheit cooler than it is now and the city of Chicago was buried beneath an ice sheet almost two miles thick. By studying this ancient coral, scientists are hoping to put together the most accurate picture yet of how sea levels have changed over thousands of years, data that can help inform projections of how sea levels may change in the future. Getting to the ancient coral, a sort of great-great-grandfather to the Great Barrier Reef, posed a challenge. It lies on and below the ocean floor. And if you go to the show notes and click on the link to this article, there are some images from the expedition. The research vessel, the Great Ship Maya, equipped with a massive drill and the scientists equipped with earplugs, spent two months boring 34 holes deep into the ancient coral reef at three key locations. The team retrieved over 730 feet of cylindrical coral samples. 
Carol Cotterell, a staff scientist for the Integrated Ocean Drilling Program, or the IODP, and the European Consortium for Research Drilling, the ECORD, or ECORD, the multi-country organisations behind the expedition, said one of the reasons the Great Barrier Reef was chosen is because it's not subject to the same kind of up-and-down tectonic jiggling that affects other spots around the globe. The region has stayed in virtually the same place over millennia, which means data taken from the area give an accurate picture of ocean levels over time. We don't have a separate signal to distract us, so we're fairly confident that what we have here are really the global sea level changes, Cottrell said. During the expedition, Cottrell and the other scientists worked 12-hour shifts, either from noon until midnight or from midnight until noon, bringing up long, spindly shafts of the buried reef. Scientists have long known that corals are the unwitting record keepers of the deep, chronicling minute changes in ocean temperature, salinity, chemistry and even sea levels as they slowly grow and add to their calcium carbonate skeletons. Some species grow in bands like tree rings, Cottrell said, and as they grow they have to extract certain things from the water to form the skeletons so you get that chemical signature trapped within each of the bands. In addition to revealing the secrets of the ocean's composition, coral colonies reveal the extent of the ocean's reach. Certain species only grow at certain depths, Cottrell said, so examining the arrangement of species in a reef reveals how deep or shallow the water was when the coral was alive. Andre Droxler, a professor at Rice University and one of the scientists analysing the ancient coral, said that during the last glacial period, sea levels were almost 400 feet lower than what they are today. When enormous ice sheets formed some 23,000 years ago, you have to take the water from somewhere, Droxler said, so sea levels dropped. Although that may seem like a long time ago, Droxler said that in the light of the Earth's four and a half billion year history, 20,000 years is just the blink of an eye. Even for our species, he said. We were well established at the time, so in fairly recent times we have this extreme cold, and then 10,000 years ago, when finally the Earth went back into a warm period, agriculture started, Droxler said. So we as Homo sapiens are intimately linked to the climate, no doubt. Initial analysis from a July conference suggests the team dug up corals even more ancient than they'd hoped for. Some of the coral is at least 60,000 years old, which may allow for an even more complete picture of the planet's changing sea levels. The IODP and ECORD scientists will release their findings in July 2011, at which point the coral samples they retrieved will be available to other researchers for study. And our second story with an Australian theme comes from the www.cosmosmagazine.com. Australian Aborigines, the first astronomers? 
an Australian study has uncovered signs that the country's ancient Aborigines may have been the world's first stargazers, predating Stonehenge and Egypt's pyramids by thousands of years. Ray Norris said widespread and detailed knowledge of the stars had been passed down through the generations by Aborigines, whose history dates back tens of millennia, in traditional songs and stories. We know there's lots of stories about the sky, songs, legends and myths, said Norris, an astronomer for Australia's science agency, the Commonwealth Scientific and Research Organisation, or the CSIRO. Stargazing for food. We wondered how much further does it go than that. It turns out also people use the sky for navigation, timekeeping, to mark out the seasons, so it's very practical. People were nomadic, so when the Pleiades, the seven sister star cluster, was up, they would move to where the nuts and berries are. Another sign and it would be time to move to the rivers, to fish for barramundi and so on. Norris, who has studied Aboriginal culture and historical accounts by white settlers, made several trips to Arnhem Land in Australia's remote outback and said his research also revealed more detailed astronomical thought. Figuring out an eclipse. Clearly, some thinker in the past has been sitting down in the bush watching an eclipse and trying to figure out how it works, he said, giving one example. Those thoughts are then encoded in the songs and ceremonies. If you take a lunar eclipse, the story in Arnhem Land is it's the sun woman and the moon man making love, and when they make love, the body of one covers the other. Norris is now searching for evidence that would put a date on Aboriginal astronomy, such as a rock carving of a meteor strike or comet. Establishing a beginning date. He is confident the Aborigines predated European stargazers, including Britain's astronomy-linked Stonehenge, which is estimated at 3100 BC, around the age of the Great Pyramid of Giza. We've established there is all this astronomy. What I don't know is how far back this goes. If it goes back 10 or 20,000 years, that makes Aborigines the world's first astronomers, he said. And from the www.newyorktimes.com website, The Secret Core of Filmmakers Who Documented Nuclear Bomb Tests. And this is by William J. Broad. They risked their lives to capture on film hundreds of blinding flashes, rising fireballs and mushroom clouds. The blast from one detonation hurled a man and his camera into a ditch, When he got up, a second wave knocked him down again. 
Then there was radiation. While many of the scientists who made atom bombs during the Cold War became famous, the men who filmed what happened when those bombs were detonated made up a secret core. Their existence and the nature of their work has emerged from the shadows only since the federal government began a concerted effort to declassify their films about a dozen years ago. In all, the atomic movie makers fashioned 6,500 secret films, according to federal officials. Today, the result is a surge in fiery images on television and movie screens, as well as growing public knowledge about the atomic filmmakers. The images are getting seared into people's imaginations, said Robert S. Norris, author of Racing for the Bomb and an atomic historian. They bear witness, he added, to extraordinary and terrifying power. Two new atomic documentaries, Countdown to Zero and Nuclear Tipping Point, feature archival images of the blasts. Both argue that the threat of atomic terrorism is on the rise and call for the strengthening of nuclear safeguards and ultimately the elimination of global arsenals. As for the atomic cameramen, there aren't that many left. Quite a few have died from cancer, George Yoshitaki, 82, one of the survivors, said of his peers in an interview. No doubt it was related to the testing. The cinematographers focused on nuclear test explosions in the Pacific and Nevada. Electrified wire ringed their headquarters in the Hollywood Hills. The inconspicuous building on Wonderland Avenue in Laurel Canyon had a soundstage, screening rooms, processing labs, animation gear, film vaults and a staff of more than 250 producers, directors and cameramen, all with top-secret clearances. When originally made, the films served as vital sources of information for scientists investigating the nature of nuclear arms and their destructiveness. Some movies also served as tutorials for federal and congressional leaders. Today, arms controllers see the old films as studies in gung-ho paranoia. They have this very odd voice, said Mark Suck, a film producer at the World Security Institute a private group in Washington. You and I would be appalled that some hydrogen bomb vaporised a corner of what used to be paradise. But they've got a guy bragging about it. A 2006 book, How to Photograph an Atomic Bomb, explores the nature of the cameraman's secretive enterprise. It's pages full of declassified photographs and technical diagrams. They're kind of unrecognised patriots, said Peter Curran, the book's author, and a special effects filmmaker in Hollywood. The images that they captured will, for a long time, be a snapshot of what our last century was like. After inaugurating the nuclear age and dropping two atomic bombs on Japan in World War II, the United States threw itself into expanding its nuclear arsenal. New designs required test detonations to make sure they worked properly. Between 1946 and 1962, the nation set off more than 200 atmospheric blasts. The secret film unit established in 1947 by the military was known as the Lookout Mountain Laboratory, surrounded by the lush greenery of Laurel Canyon, just minutes from the Sunset Strip. The lab drew on Hollywood talent and technology to pursue its clandestine ends. 
The neighbours were suspicious because the lights were on all night long, Mr Yoshitaki recalled. Film historians say the unit tested many technologies that Hollywood later embraced, including advanced lenses and cameras, films and projection techniques. The cameraman fanned out from Wonderland Avenue to governmental test sites in the South Pacific and the Nevada desert, their job to chronicle the age's fury. It put them as close as two miles from the blasts. The visual records helped scientists do everything from estimating the size of nuclear detonations to measuring their destructive power. Mock towns went up in flames. Mr Yoshitaki recalled documenting what a fiery explosion did to pigs whose skin resembles that of humans. Some were still squealing, he said. You could smell the meat burning. It made you sick. I thought, oh, how terrible. If they were humans, they would have suffered terribly. The cameramen were allowed to simply witness, not photograph, their first hydrogen bomb explosions, which were roughly 1,000 times more powerful than atomic blasts. The goal was to get them accustomed to the level of violence. The purple glow in the sky, that was so eerie, Mr Yoshitaki recalled. And we were not even close, about 20 miles away. It filled the whole sky. Hollywood stars appeared in some of the films. Reed Hadley, star of the 1950s television show Racket Squad, portrayed a pipe-smoking military observer who, in 1952, witnessed the world's first hydrogen blast. As you can imagine, feeling is running pretty high, he said, standing aboard a warship in the Pacific. And there's reason for it. If everything goes according to plan, we'll soon see the largest explosion ever set off on the face of the Earth. Official Washington saw many of the films. Members of Congress who controlled the appropriation of atomic funds got special viewings. Atomic leaders put on their best shows for Congress. Charles P. Demos, a former classification official with the Department of Energy, which runs the nation's nuclear weapons program, recalled in an interview. They probably affected a lot of the decisions. The guarded enterprise lost its subject matter in 1963 when the superpowers agreed to move all testing of nuclear weapons underground ending the spectacle of atmospheric blasts and what governments had come to regard as serious risks to human health from radioactive fallout. In 1997, Hazel R. O'Leary, the Secretary of Energy under President Bill Clinton, sought to declassify the old movies. At a news conference, Ms. O'Leary called the archive a treasure trove, and promised to release the films after they had undergone any needed redactions for purposes of national security. Nuclear specialists say the shape and size of a weapon, especially a hydrogen bomb, can reveal design secrets. The department's goal was to make public up to 20 films a month and complete the declassification project in five to seven years. Late in 1997, an event in Hollywood at the American Film Institute honoured the atomic filmmakers. Present were some two dozen of the survivors. You had to have the cameras running before the detonation, Douglas Wood, 75, a cinematographer, told a reporter at the gathering. If not, he said, the blinding flash would burn the film and jam the film gate. 
Mr. Curran, the filmmaker, organised and filmed the Hollywood event. Impressed with the skill and courage of the cinematographers, he mixed the event footage with declassified bomb imagery to produce Atomic Filmmakers, a video he sells on his website. The declassifications stopped in 2001. The arrival of the Bush administration and an outbreak of atomic jitters after the terrorist attacks on New York City and the Pentagon combined to bring about the program's demise. Today, the Energy Department says it has released publicly some 100 movies from the vast stockpile, which the military controls. What you see is what we have, said Darwin Morgan, a department spokesman in Las Vegas. A page on the department's website features links to clips from the atomic films that visitors can view free of charge and sells full versions as video discs for $10, plus shipping. It calls them an enduring, awesome visual documentation of the power and destruction of nuclear weapons. Many are available free on YouTube under the search heading Declassified US Nuclear Test Film. Mr. Coran continues to work on the old movies using high-tech methodologies to improve their clarity and restore faded images to their original glory. He fixes things pixel by pixel, said Mr. Sugg of the World Security Institute. He's this fanatical quality guy. My passion is to find ways of fixing them up, Mr. Kiran said in an interview. The whole point is not to lose something that needs to be preserved. I doubt very much that they're going to be shooting off these bombs again in the atmosphere. Viewers include President Obama. In April, he hosted a White House screening of Nuclear Tipping Point. The documentary profiles a bipartisan group of former atomic officials who are promoting a vision of the world free of nuclear arms, an objective in line with Mr Obama's own policies. Mr Yoshitaki, the atomic cameraman, said the release and restoration of the images were healthy developments because their disclosure improved public understanding of the nuclear threat. It's a good thing to show the horror, he said. And he wondered, now that the Cold War is over, why do advanced nations still retain more than 20,000 of the deadliest of all weapons? Do we need all these bombs? Mr Yoshitaki asked. It's scary. At this point in the podcast, I'd just like to say thank you to those of you who provided feedback for the show. I had two emails since last time, one from Long Montana, who has also provided some photographs for us, which are now on our website, and Daedalus Flyer, otherwise known as Rocky. Thank you for your email as well. And from the US iTunes store, a review by Didja. I think that's how you say it. Paul, the real croc hunter. And this review compares me to... Paul Hogan and Steve Irwin. I really don't think I'm in the same class as those two guys, especially the late, great Steve Irwin, who is extremely sadly missed. Anyway, 
I don't want to be compared to Paul Hogan too much either, you know, because at the moment he's in big trouble with the Australian taxman, and I'd rather stay away from that sort of dilemma. Anyway, thank you for your review. It's greatly appreciated. And I can't quite remember if I gave a thank you for this one. This is also from the Canadian iTunes store, and it's a review by Rana Gill. Much appreciated. And remember, if you'd like to provide a review for the podcast, it is really greatly appreciated by myself. And if it's done in iTunes or Podcast Alley or somewhere like that, it really, really helps to raise the profile of the podcast and helps to keep the podcast featured in iTunes. So if you'd like to do it, I would greatly appreciate it. This is probably the first time I've done an article from this website, from the roadandtrack.com website. The strangest car features. What were the automakers thinking when they added these not-so-standard features? And it's by Nick Kosuski. To stand out in a crowded field... Automakers have to push the envelope when it comes to adding unique attributes to a vehicle. Sure, your neighbour just parked a brand new car in his driveway, but does his new ride have glowing speakers or a built-in perfume dispenser? We've combed through spec sheets and option lists in our search for the strangest new car features. What we've found is an automotive world full of creativity and in some cases a few items that just left us scratching our head. What exactly is a gentleman function button and what is it doing in a BMW luxury sedan? Grabbing the attention of car buyers isn't made easier when even the most basic economy car often comes loaded with standard equipment such as air conditioning, power door locks and a window rattling stereo system. Even a supercar costing $1.7 million isn't immune to adding some razzle-dazzle to set it apart from, well, all the other million-dollar supercars. Our first car, the 2011 Mini Cooper Convertible, and it has an open-ometer, O-P-E-N-O-M-E-T-E-R. Mini Cooper convertible owners apparently need an added incentive to drop their tops. How else can we explain the openometer, a tiny gauge mounted on the dashboard that records in minutes and hours precisely how long the fabric top has been kept down? Fitted as standard equipment, the openometer, says Mini, is a tool to help you keep aware of your openness so you can revel in the roofless hours you've spent on your trip, cultivating your open mind and a tan. 
Our guess is that a few BMW Mini engineers spent too much time in the sun before coming up with this useless gadget. The second car. The 2011 Bugatti Veyron 16.4 and it has a top speed key. The Bugatti Veyron 16.4 is among the fastest and most exclusive cars in the world. Not only do you need approximately $1.7 million to buy one, but you also need one very special key if you want to unlock this 1001 brake horsepower supercar's top speed of more than 250 miles per hour. An owner must fit the, unimaginatively named, top speed key before attempting to reach the Veyron's outer limits. Give it a twist and the Veyron's suspension and rear spoiler are lowered for better wind cheating aerodynamics. The steering input is also limited at 250 miles per hour. You want to make sure all your steering corrections are minor. Hmm, the third car, the 2011 BMW 750i, the gentleman function. The award for the most regal sounding and totally bewildering feature name goes to the BMW 7 series and the gentleman function. Located deep within the vehicle features of this refined German luxury sedan, the actual function of this device is less grandiose than its lofty title. Basically, it's a clever way for the driver to make more room for rear passengers. With a few clicks of BMW's iDrive controller, the front passenger seat can be manoeuvred using the same controls used for the driver's seat. Okay, but what's the point? Unless you're a limousine driver, there really isn't one. The gentleman function allows the driver to increase legroom for rear passengers without forcing him or her to get out of the car and use the front passenger seat controls. The 2011 Kia Soul Glowing and Pulsing Speakers by now you've seen the cutesy commercials and are fully aware that hamsters have given the Kia Soul their full endorsement. Yet those furry household pets have a trick up their sleeve, or more exactly, a frivolous feature located in the front door mounted speakers. Crank up the stereo in certain models of Kia Soul and watch as lights surrounding the speakers pulse and glow to the beat of the music. It's fun for about five minutes. After that, it's about as enjoyable as having a bratty kid kick the back of your seat. To make matters worse, these illuminated speakers appear to be part of an ongoing recall related to the wiring harness of the 2010 Kia Soul. 2011 Ford Mustang Adjustable Dashboard Lighting Lots of cars have adjustable interior lighting, but the Ford Mustang takes top marks for the sheer magnitude of different colours on offer. With the scroll of a button, the Mustang's gauge cluster can be turned to one of literally hundreds of hues. This should really be the default sports coupe for any manager of a Sherwin-Williams or Benjamin Moore paint store. What's even wackier is that, in a weird way, the Mustang's interior light show really works wonders depending on the mood you're in. Feeling racy? 
Switch the gauges to a fiery red and stomp the gas pedal. For relaxed highway cruising, opting for an icy blue or forest green helps to calm things down. A 2011 Fiat 500 perfume dispenser. We try to limit our selection of wacky features to vehicles sold in North America. But with US sales likely to begin within the next few months, we couldn't resist offering a sneak preview of the charming and sweet-smelling Fiat 500 city car. As an accessory, Fiat offers buyers of the 500 a built-in perfume diffuser for this retro-styled little hatchback. Available in white or black, the electric diffuser fits between the front seats. There are currently three fragrances, citrus, essence of night and breath of fresh air. The intensity of the scent can be adjusted by pushing the plus or minus buttons located on top of the device. About the only drawback, other than the giggling of your friends, is that the diffuser effectively turns the dual front cup holder into a single drink unit. And finally, from the 2011 Honda Element, a dog-friendly package. Now, I better not let Rex hear this, because after this little episode, my Subaru Forester wagon is going to seem awfully boring. Well, as far as dogs go. Your opinion of this next feature might be determined by whether or not you have paws and a tail. If you do, or happen to live with a creature that does, then the dog-friendly package offered in the Honda Element could be your second best friend. For $995, this option package adds pooch-friendly features like a custom-fitted, soft-sided crate, spill-resistant water bowl, electric cooling fan mounted in the cargo bay, portable ramp, dog-patterned rear seat covers, and heavy-duty dog-bone-patterned floor mats. Extra accessories include a leash, collar, ID tag, and yes, even a dispenser for dog waste bags. Exterior paw print badges on the tailgate and front fenders let everyone know you're a proud dog owner, as if being constantly covered in Fido's hair wasn't proof enough. A little blast from the past. <laughs> 
from the www.daminteresting.com website, The Birth Control of Yesteryear, written by Alan Bellows on the 21st of May, 2007. Approximately 2,600 years ago, around 630 BCE, the Greek island of Thera was plagued by drought and overpopulation. According to legend, an assortment of settlers were selected to sail south to establish a colony in more hospitable climes. The men and women apprehensively put to sea, and the gaggle of enterprising Greeks eventually erected the city of Cyrene on Africa's northern tip. There the settlers encountered a local herb which would ultimately bring them and their progeny fantastic wealth. The prized plant became such a key pillar of the Cyrenian economy that its likeness was stamped upon many of the city's gold and silver coins. The images often depicted a regal-looking woman sitting in a chair, with one hand touching the herb and the other hand pointing at her genitals. The plant was known as Silphium or Laserwort, and its heart-shaped fruit purportedly brought the ancient world a highly sought-after freedom the opportunity to enjoy sex with very little risk of pregnancy. The silphium plants were giant fennels which grew wild along the dry hillsides of the Mediterranean coast. It didn't take long for the Greek settlers to discover its value as a food source, and the vegetable flesh came to be prized as a delicious garnish, while pleasant perfumes were coaxed from its yellow blossoms. Over time, further uses for the wild fennel were found, such as the resin extracted from its stalks and roots, which was used to treat cough, sore throat, fever, indigestion, snake bite, warts in the seat, epilepsy, and a host of other disagreeable ailments. But of all the plant's virtues, the silphium was certainly most prized for its pregnancy-preventing properties. As word of the birth control wonder herb spread throughout ancient Europe, Africa and Asia, a market for the versatile fennel developed rapidly. The seeds became widely used among the world's wealthier nations, including the citizens of ancient Greece, Rome, Egypt and India. By some accounts, the silphium seed was also a potent aphrodisiac, a property which considerably compounded its perceived value. The Roman bard, Catullus, famously alluded to its sexual properties in one of his love poems, where he declared that he and his lover would share as many kisses as there were grains of sands on Cyrene's silphium shores. More plainly, we can make love so long as we have silphium. Despite the efforts of the Cyrenians and their would-be competitors, the silphium industry stubbornly resisted expansion. Men worked long and hard to propagate the plant, but the notoriously cantankerous laserwort mocked all efforts at cultivation. It refused to sprout anywhere outside of its narrow swath of wild growth along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Though this limitation necessitated strict guidelines to prevent over-harvesting, the natural scarcity served to maintain the herb's high value. Occasional silphium smugglers penetrated the supply chain, but aside from these rare exceptions, the royalty of Cyrene maintained a comfortable monopoly on civilization's contraceptives. 
For centuries, the North African city thrived on its laserwort bounty. The seeds of the fickle fennel came into such high demand that they were eventually worth their weight in silver. The Roman government went so far as to store a cache of the herb in the official treasury. Most of the primitive silver and gold coins from Cyrene were stamped with the images of the Silphium, some depicting just a single heart-shaped seed. It is thought by many historians that this ancient icon of unfettered lovemaking is the origins of today's ubiquitous I love you heart symbol. Unlike many other medicines of its time, Silphium was not thought of as a mere folk remedy. Scholars and doctors of the day openly praised the plant's effectiveness as a contraceptive. Ancient Rome's foremost gynaecologist, a physician named Sorinus, wrote that women should drink the Silphium juice with water once a month, since it not only prevents contraception, but also destroys anything existing. Alternatively, a tuft of wool would be soaked in the juice and inserted into the vagina as a pessary. During the Laserwort's heyday, Rome's birth rate decreased considerably despite increasing life expectancy, plentiful food and relatively few wars or epidemics, and some historians cite this as evidence of the herb's effectiveness. Unfortunately, modern science will probably never determine whether the fennel's extract was really an effective form of parenthood prevention, nor will it measure Laserwort's merit as a medicine. By the end of the 1st century AD, following a 50-year decline in Silphium numbers, the Roman historian Pliny the Elder recorded the plant's lamentable extinction. The last remaining stalk of the laserwort was snipped and sent to the Emperor Nero as a curiosity, and thus ended 600 years of reliable birth control. The cause of the herb's eradication is uncertain, However, the most widely accepted theory is that over-harvesting coupled with livestock grazing caused the Silphium population to decline beyond recovery. This trend may have started around 74 BCE when the region was absorbed into a Roman senatorial province. This change gave control of the laserwort crop to a long series of one-year term governors who were largely motivated by short-term profits. It is also possible that the natural desertification of the region shrank the plant's already diminutive habitat. As an alternative explanation, some botanists have suggested that the ancient giant fennel never truly became extinct and that the modern Ferula tingitana is the same plant, though this explanation is unlikely considering that Tingitana has long grown naturally in many areas where laserwort was unable to germinate. Science has since examined many of the less effective herbal contraceptives which were employed in subsequent centuries, such as Queen Anne's Lace and Pennyroyal. Both demonstrated a significant degree of success in preventing or terminating pregnancies in rats, Some relatives of Silphium were also subjected to modern laboratory testing, which indicated about a 40-50% anti-fertility effectiveness. The extinction of Silphium is now considered to be young humanity's earliest environmental blunders. If laserwort was indeed more effective than the alternatives, then the bygone birth control is certainly deserving of its glowing reputation. 
evidence suggests that the natural world allowed women in antiquity to govern their reproductive lives with far more control than commonly realised, and without the need to resort to senseless abstinence. But as mankind is wont to do, the custodians of this scarce commodity eventually surrender to greed and short-sightedness, overtaxing the renewable resource until it was hopelessly exhausted. And before moving on to the odd spot section of the podcast, I'd just like to thank these three people who became friends of the podcast since the last podcast. I'd like to thank Kendra Lynn, Jacqueline Carr and Angela Hill. Thank you everyone, your help is greatly appreciated. And remember, if you'd like to become a friend of the podcast, it's really easy. Just go to the website at www.origins.info, click on the donate button and make a donation of any amount to the podcast. And in return, I will send you the links to the extra content version of the Origins podcast. We're currently up to episode 12 with the extra content version of the Origins podcast. And number 13 is going to follow very closely on the heels of this podcast because I have some time to make it so I'm going to get stuck right into it straight away so you should see it in a day or two. And from the www.theage.com.au website, the Oddspot Stories. A pigeon carrying a memory card beat a broadband connection to get a video from Yorkshire to Lancashire in England. It landed in 80 minutes. The computer was still uploading the video. Councillors in Kent, Britain, who asked 55,000 people whether the mayor should be directly elected, were disappointed when only one person voted. 
he was against the change. Wild baboons have been coming down from the mountains of South Africa and raiding the vineyards of Cape Town's wine country. They eat fermented grapes and then pass out drunk. The University of Baltimore is offering a course on the undead. Students will devour zombie films and comics before developing scripts for their ideal zombie movies. And here's one from near home. Sydney authorities have banned a circus from performing an act in which a live fish is swallowed and regurgitated after an animal rights group complained it was cruel. Who too, the fish or the audience? Hmm. Japanese police have arrested a robber who wore a nappy on his head as a makeshift balaclava. He was identified when he took it off to breathe whilst running away. Berlin tour guide Anna Huss wanted to take visitors off the beaten track and came up with the novel idea of showing them some of the city's most famous toilets. Is that what you call a shit tour? Hmm. Smoke and drink more. Russian's finance minister Alexei Kadrin has urged citizens, saying higher consumption will help increase tax revenues for spending on social services. People should understand those who drink those who smoke are doing more to help the state, he said. Yeah, brother. Police responding to a stolen car in Allentown, Pennsylvania, were taking the victim's details when the thief drove the vehicle in question right past them, arm out of the window, radio blaring. He was quickly arrested. Can you break a million dollar note? A man from the Ivory Coast was arrested in Abu Dhabi after allegedly persuading a woman to try to exchange two phony US $1 million bills at the UAE's central bank. The phony notes feature a portrait of George Washington. And finally, police in Melbourne, Florida accept it was accidental but are shaking their heads at how Patricia Morris, 72, was shot by her husband, Arnold, as they conducted a robbery drill to practice how they would respond to an intruder. The two had little experience with guns, obviously, and Mrs Morris is recovering after surgery. Just in case you were wondering what was coming up in episode 13 of the extra content version of the Origins podcast, here's a few of the stories I'll be looking at. The Asian unicorn spotted for the first time since 1999. A grandmother passes her driving test at the 960th attempt. And computers show how wind could have parted the Red Sea. And something that interests me, biofuel is discovered in whiskey production process. And there's a video of these dudes in metal suits blasted by a Tesla coil whilst playing their guitars. 
people who became nouns, and 10 fascinating phobias. Those and other stories in episode 13 of the extra content version of the Origins podcast. The music for today's podcast came from the musicalley.com website and the bandwidth was provided by TalkShoe at www.talkshoe.com. Well, everyone, that concludes this episode, which is 103 of the Normal Origins podcast. I hope you enjoyed today's show, and I'm looking forward to meeting you all again next time. So it's bye for now. Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.